and welcome to another of Political Yeti's Politics Podcasts. I'm James Miller and this week I'm joined by Paul Sweeney, MP for Glasgow North East, Shadow Scotland Office Minister, man who has made me hum the Sweeney all day. You must get that all the time. Uh, uh, oh, it's our generation. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I know. All right. I'm the oldest by a distance in this room today. Not most millennials. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah. I was about to say welcome back. I'm right um, I'm also joined by Rachel Cunliffe, comment and features editor at City AM. Hi. Not the first time you've been on the podcast, but the first time you've been on this format of the podcast. And the first right? time I've seen PMQ's live. Yes, well, thank you. You mentioned it. Let's start with, he says, coolly pressing the button, this. Day of first. Must be the first time you've heard that jingle as well, right? Because we yeah. didn't have that in the summer. <laughs> it's exciting, like isn't it? it. It's exciting. PMQs, it was a good PMQs today. You got lucky with your first PMQs, I would say. Yeah. Uh, would you agree? It's definitely more exciting watching it live than on than on TV. But yeah, you said you said it was a higher standard than, than normal. Yeah, it's not always that exciting, <laughs> exciting, I have to say. But it was good, partly because, you know, let's start at the top. Jeremy Corbyn was, well, he started with a very good short question. He went a bit waffly, but he went on Brexit and he's basically got... Theresa May over a barrel, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's an all in a matter of time, really, because the you know the incoherence of the Tory party's position on it is becoming more and more obvious by the day. You know, we're always waiting on something coming up that's going to add clarity. The big hope was, uh, same big hope was Boris Johnson's speech, um, but it was essentially a rehash of everything that was said a year ago, and we're now a year to go. Yeah. Uh, no further forward, really, on any clarity. I mean, the, when you see the issue over. The Irish border, uh, yeah. in particular, no, no issue over that, no clarity over it. You know, it was quite disturbing actually to just hear the, the DUP MPs behind me uh, screaming, "What about the IRA, Jeremy?" You know, is that the only thing they've got to say on it? Yeah, I mean, one of the things was <laughs> somebody trying to get in the room. Uh, <laughs> is it a special guest? That's Daniel. Rowley. It is a special guest. It's uh, Daniel Rowley's walked in the room with our lunch. Uh, hello, Daniel. Hello, sorry. Um, <laughs> PM thought she was quite clever because he asked, what do you want from Brexit? And she went, a bespoke economic partnership. Oh, I wrote that down too. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then sat straight back down again, which is really clever. Most vacuous form of words. Yes, but also then handed it <coughs> to Jeremy to say, you know, if you want that, what? how does that work in Northern Ireland? Exactly. To which her answer was, uh, read what I said last summer. Mm-hmm. Which wasn't was even nothing. an answer. Yeah. It's the Rubik's Cube she can't deal with. You know, the East, West, North, South conundrum. I don't want... To defend the government's you roadmap can. on Brexit. You defend the government. No, I, uh, the roadmap on Brexit uh, because uh, is there, there is a roadmap. One, except, yeah. well, uh, it's not going to be a Mad Max dystopia. I mean, Mad Max is okay if you are Mad Max, isn't it? Or if you're Tina Turner in the third one. Yeah. I haven't seen the most recent one. I think it's just I fairly mean, bleak all round, really. Is it? Yeah, kind of it's irradiated, an irradiated post-nuclear yeah. landscape. Yeah, it's a long time. Since what I was going to say is that his line that it's that's that's a low bar. His opening question. Uh, was was good. Um, was. I just think it's very easy to c- criticise the government for not having clarity on Brexit. I'm not. Oh, it's a busy place today. <laughs> now somebody's trying to phone Danielle Riley. Maybe it's Danielle phoning her own phone. Going, can I come back yet? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what the Labour policy on Brexit is. If, if there is a 
coherent Brexit vision from Labour, I would really like to hear it. Well, it's a question I ask an awful lot on my other podcast, the Brexit Breakdown podcast. Go on then, Paul. What is the Labour position on Brexit? Well, Labour's position is six economic tests, really about it. And the most critical one is maintaining the same benefits uh, of the single market and customs union. Um, and so also staying in it. Well, that's the that's the difficulty, you really, because the Northern Ireland question either, have you? Yeah, we do, what? because ultimately we, we are giving ourselves enough scope that if we can't resolve it through another negotiated means, then we default to what we have. Well, the the issue we have to deal with is we cannot compromise the the national security of the country, which would be the case if we weren't able to reconcile the border issue in Northern Ireland. So. That's one of the key tests that Labour's applying. The other one is benefits to the single market and the customs union. Those two are bound up. So essentially what we are saying is the only mechanism we have to retain that is um, EFTA membership. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be joining the European Economic Area because the European Economic Area is EU plus EFTA. The only difficulty with EFTA is you're essentially joining a club that consists of Norway and a couple of other <laughs> very yeah. small uh, yeah. entities. So you would essentially... It would be a, it essentially be the, the UK shoring itself into an arrangement that was negotiated by Norway um, as, a, yes. as a sort of high halfway house. And you're a rule um, taker then. And you're then a rule taker. You're kind of almost becoming a vassal state of the European yeah. Union, which would be for the fifth biggest economy in the world uh, an unsustainable position. So really, the only other option in that regard is to negotiate a whole new plane of membership or associate membership, which would be... A bespoke economic, a bespoke economic That's actually partnership. what you want, isn't it? That's what you want as <laughs> so, well. What's quite interesting about Brexit is, the, the, which was why I disagree with referendums in the first place, actually, um, particularly the ones that are binary, yes. because they force you into an extremist position by default. Yeah. yeah. You're either all for something or all against it. And that's kind of where British politics has ended up in this kind of Western Front trench warfare. Which is unfortunate because actually I approached, I've campaigned for Remain, but in reality um, I'm fairly sceptical of the European Union. I'm not, on balance I believe that the benefits yeah. were outweighing the risks, uh, but it's not that I don't think that the European Union has its very substantial flaws, and uh, many of them have been alluded to, particularly around, from a left-wing point of view, the issue around the single market, which was essentially, in many ways, a Thatcherite project yeah, yeah. Um, to drive markets and competition through every aspect of public service. And there's, there's also the issue of what is the EU now versus what do a number of people within the EU really want it to become and well, yeah. a number of very high up people in the EU really do want it to become some kind of super state. And that isn't scaremongering, that is genuinely mm. what they want yeah. with like an EU army and well, which is a perfectly uh, noble and acceptable position to take, it, as long as you're out and, and playing with the voters that that's what you want, right? It is, um, but I don't think that they necessarily have been. Um, yeah. And um, but well, there are there are there are issues there with the kind of underhand power grab that perhaps some within the EU are trying, and some uh, member states are also trying very hard to fight that without Britain yeah, at this yeah, point. I think you're right. I think in the nineties, in particular, I think. There was a lot of hubris around the European Union being this, this sort of the end of history, and this was the successor to the Cold War, and it'd be a new era for Europe. And there was this dash to expand the Union uh, when perhaps the economic conditions weren't appropriate, particularly when you look at the likes of uh, Greece, for example. Um, and then the harmonisation around the currency was, it was yeah. very premature. And, and certainly, if there's one thing I learned at university, is that generally currency unions, when you have massive disparities in economic well, uh, wealth across the, the the geography of that currency area, you're doomed to fail. Yeah, don't worry. Um, it only works in the context of somewhere like the United States, where you've got Montana versus California, because they automatically redistribute wealth across the union. Well, and even yeah. then, it doesn't necessarily work. 
Canada. Indeed, yeah. uh, I've got a California friend who's like, yeah, we're definitely going to secede. They're not. But on um, widening it out perhaps to countries that were not ready and on sort of migration and positive things like that, yeah. um, we also had today questions about how EU citizens here are yes. going to um, maintain their rights. Full scully. The, yes, and oh, the... Um, the government benches. And, uh, and having a sort of streamlined process, which is really important. And I wrote this down. I'm not sure if this is what she meant, but Theresa May seemed to say that it would be the same cost as a British passport, which I think is something like 100 quid. Yes, <laughs> that, did, did, did she, did she really I mean that? I didn't clock that. Yeah, I did that's, clock. That's, that's what she said. Um, but obviously, uh, he was saying that we need a process that assumes they're going to stay, yeah. rather mm. than assuming that they are outsiders who have to kind of yeah. start from the beginning, which I think yeah. is really important. Um, and it's so clear that the Home Office is just not really prepared for the process at the moment, mm. um, which it needs to get on board with. But the vital thing, I think, is that uh, Paul Scully comes from Sutton Cheam, which is basically London, <laughs> and we've got London elections coming up, and anybody who says European Union nationals could all, you know, GTF, is going to get absolutely destroyed at the elections yeah. in London. Yes, just and it's again they weren't given the franchise in the referendum as well. Yes. When actually, I would argue that should have been the case. If you're a resident here, and you're contributing positive to society oh, in the UK, you should have had a right to vote. Maybe, I mean, maybe. They, well, they got a right to got vote. The, right the Scottish vote, Scottish referendum. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think so it, is that the the, the yeah, precedent was set? Maybe that could have been the thing that swung it actually. Or oh, the they end. could have uh, given votes to sixteen-year-olds like they have in Wales who can't indeed. use a sunbed but can exactly. can vote. Or get yeah, a tongue yeah. piercing. Exactly. But as somebody pointed out, you don't get skin cancer from voting. So, you know, there is yeah. that. I think that's a fair, but we did, fair comeback to the, 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 <laughs> the sunbed thing. We, we did, of course, get another tedious question about the blue passport. We did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was about to mention that. We got the passports. Yeah. Are the passports going to oh, be made in Britain? God. Oh, what? I mean, if you're going to have the. For a start, we have always been able to decide what colour our passports are. We have. Even yeah. within the EU. So, I don't remember non maroon passports what is the official colour of the passports what do we call it I call it maroon yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, maroon. Maroon. Yeah. Well, it's been written um, as long as I've been on it yeah. I can remember apparently they were black before well right? they were black dark is, blue how I, is this I've a never contentious had one. issue I'm not that old alternative my, my facts had black or dark blue ones yeah. when I was a kid but um, who cares exactly who cares but I mean if you do care about these things the fact yeah. that they might end up being manufactured in France there's yeah. what three bidders for the contract and two exactly. of them are French it's just insane no, but that's, but I would say that's good because if we're moving towards a globalised, open, free trading world, which is what Boris Johnson and David Davis seem to think that we should be, and I think that we should be, then it doesn't matter if they're made in France or Singapore or New Zealand. What matters but it doesn't matter what colour they are either. This stuff doesn't matter. Does no, but it, 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 it matters as the Prime Minister that, that we will get to choose what colour they are. No, it doesn't matter. We've already got the we can already choose. Let's be honest, passports, I think, are going to be irrelevant pretty soon anyway. We're all going to be using... Yeah, we're going to be using biometrics and Irish, Irish scanners. <laughs> and you're, you're, completely, actually, you're, you're actually really you're right. There's one thing you can learn about, is that, I think, Estonia's model where they've got global um, e-passporting, so anyone can actually register as an Estonian uh, e-citizen yeah. and set up a business resident in Estonia, anywhere right. in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of thing. They, they have this. They have a small card that you can use, and that's your basis of citizenship. thing is, you know, that's a betrayal of, uh, that question today, of the kind of empire nostalgia yes. uh, that governs a lot of the thinking behind Brexit, or this kind of harking back to the you know good old days that never actually existed. And I think that's what we're... You know, guilt, you know, we're almost becoming prisoners of history rather than liberated, liberated by history or knowledge of it. But I think, if you think of that whole blue passport debate, 
before the First World War, passports didn't exist. People were allowed to walk, uh, travel freely across Europe without any restrictions. Well, that is a you know, it's actually a weird sort of twentieth uh, century anomaly in, in many ways. And why are we harking back to it? It's some sort of thing? It's a, it's a sort of totem of sovereignty when it really isn't. Um, you know, I think if we looked at countries like. Estonia as progressive models for the future. We should actually be moving beyond Estonia's, the whole idea of post- passports. Estonia is amazing. You can vote online. You can do your taxes in like two minutes. Like you said, you can you can register yeah. uh, to be an Estonian citizen. Um, they're they're pretty brilliant. Well, um, they are. Unfortunately, they're about to get invaded by Russia. So they're swings and roundabouts. They're swings and roundabouts, aren't they? Is that right? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I should point out why I was laughing at your claim that we wouldn't need passports anymore because I went to Madrid last week. I was there too. Swan straight through the passport control in Madrid Airport. Madrid Airport, a big place, big airport. Yeah. Came back to Gatwick. Oh, got to queue up for 15 minutes, 13 minutes or something. They've got lovely e-passport gates. Can't use them because you have I had people under 12 with me. Don't tell me we're going to be passport free. Certainly not in this country. We're yeah. rubbish at passport control. Have you tried doing immigration in America? Yeah, all right, that was oh, the one place my hoity-toity well-travelled kids were like, well, at least it's not like we went to Orlando, which admittedly was horrific. We were also talking about history there, talking about First World War. Somebody mentioned the Cold War. Come on, we've got to go there. Oh, Is your leader a spy, Paul? Oh, that was such a crap line, wasn't it? The Is he a spy? No, I, no, I, I think, uh, I, I think uh, the most absurd, fanciful nonsense, you know, as if people in political parties aren't going to meet with diplomatic representatives of any country uh, over the course of their business. You know, it's just absurd that the guy is clearly some sort of fantasist that was making up all sorts of absurd claims about um, what he was doing around, uh, he got knowledge about what, the, what Margaret Thatcher was having for breakfast and stuff. Well, because I believe you know, Margaret Thatcher used to tell Jeremy Corbyn what she'd, the first person she'd tell oh, really? who she'd have for breakfast, what she'd have for breakfast the next so day. They had the very yeah, Jeremy Corbyn, obviously. She couldn't even text him, didn't have mobile phones in the exactly. She'd actually phone him up and say, Jeremy, I'm going to tell you, the most left-wing man in this parliament, even yeah. though I'm the most right-wing person in this parliament, what I'm having for breakfast yeah. and what I'm going to wear tomorrow. friendship in British political history, oh, clearly. Yeah. It could be a, maybe become a biopic, you know, the Thatcher-Corbyn uh, romance. I, However, felt you know. so, I felt sorry for her because she clearly had this line about blank checks. Yeah, and, and, and she and desperately you know, tries to shoehorn it. And she desperately tries to shoehorn it in. And I don't know if, if that was like luck that he hadn't said anything that required money or if he knew that she was going to go for it. I don't know. Uh, but it would have. I think it actually would have been a really good line had it been deployed in the right way, but she kind of forced it in um, at the end. Yes, the Prime Minister can make puns about checks. Well done. Yeah, he's, he's, he's clearly a fantasist and it's all a bit... No, this, is, this is the check spy we're talking about, not Jeremy Gordon. <laughs> well, uh, both. Um, but um, I... The, the 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 claims that uh, sort of a secret agent he wouldn't have known anything anyway exactly um, but I think uh, it's not unreasonable to say that at the time he was quite sympathetic with the Soviet cause and still he is. has he still is and he has said that the only reason the Soviet Union failed was because uh, Russia tried to get into an arms race with America and that the principles were good and the principles let's face it were not that good and a lot of people died and a lot of people lived in abject poverty and at the time I don't think he was uh, specifically trying to sell state secrets to the enemy um, but I do think he was probably very sympathetic with the cause in the same way that he was sympathetic with the IRA cause and that's a legitimate thing to criticise him for. Um, were the prin- oh, I, I don't really want to get into a history lesson. Were the principles bad or was it the practice? I mean, I know that's the thing that's sh- you know always said to left-wingers is, oh, you think you know communism would have succeeded if it was done properly. But there is something to that, actually. It wasn't done properly. 
Um, it wasn't done properly, but it was apparent. Like at the time, people were saying that it was done properly and it was a huge success, and then it fell apart. And they right. said, no, no, it wasn't real communism. And they said the same thing about Cuba, and Corbyn was saying the same thing about Venezuela yes. up to July or June 2015. Until it all went um, horribly wrong. And has is since uh, not taken back any of those claims. So maybe you believe that in some utopian way it could work, but the evidence suggests that it hasn't worked practically in any way, shape or form. Now yesterday, Corbyn struck back at the ridiculous stories, because they have been utter cobblers, frankly, in the right-wing press, and said, change is coming, we're going to stand up to the right-wing press. Were you chilled? Some people said this was a, had a, a chilling effect. Were you, did you feel chilled as a journalist? Well, no, because also, according to, to Corbyn, the, the mainstream media has no influence or power anyway. Yeah, so, it's a bit problematic, um, that, isn't it? So we, um, and, and anyway, I'm not a real journalist, so I'm not too worried. You are a real <laughs> journalist. I'm saying you're not a real journalist. <laughs> but uh, he was giving this, this speech about how, as well, um, financial services uh, need to be the servants of society yes. rather than the master of society. Uh, and then at PMQs, um, he was talking about Brexit again and said business really wants to know and I'm like yeah business really does want to know um, that's something that we hear a lot and business clarity not sure generally the business community would say that Jeremy Corbyn was their biggest proponent uh, and supporter so far depends what industries you ask true <laughs> uh, even big, big, big finance has been beating a path to his door I believe I mean they're all want to have a chat with John McDonnell these days because they think he's possibly going to get into number 11 I don't think they as you say I don't think they believe he's their greatest proponent but they, they really are interested in what Corbyn and McDonnell plan. Okay. My, uh, yes, we should be very interested in, in what they plan. My uh, advice to them would be uh, it's, it's probably not worth trying to suck up now because if they ever do get into power, it won't do you any good. Well, that's, that's uh, is that a threat to the Labour Party? <laughs> I'm intrigued. <laughs> well, the reality, I think, is the, the industries actually generate real wealth in this country and actually would help improve our country's balance of payments, for example. What are the industries that generate real wealth? Manufacturing industries in this country, which are actually... There are many of them, they can't generate Well, Britain's still the eighth biggest manufacturing nation in the world, actually. Uh, but it needs to be bigger. Germany has benefited so much uh, from being the world's leading exporter for many years and one of the world's largest exporting sectors, top third, I think, uh, uh, top two or three exporters in the world, uh, manufacturing nations in the world, because it has such a well-invested and highly capitalised industrial base. And that's what we've lost in this country because our whole financial services system is governed around large-scale speculation and not actually investing in real long-term wealth creation it's governed by spivs essentially not people who actually understand real oh, manufacturing and I come from a manufacturing exactly. industrial background exactly people like you, no, you who have uh, built ships with your own bare hands exactly. you and we're and now sitting and in Westminster why don't you go out and build something we're, 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 I'm here to because I'm sick of the fact that we're building world class ships in facilities that are 50 years out of date because the finance industry in this country can't understand the value proposition of it and would not invest in it no, you can't say that just because some industries you make physical things and some industries are based on things that you can't see in services that one is more valuable than the other like we are a leading export in professional services financial services education uh law or uh fintech all of these really really important things that do add value to the real economy and that work together uh, and create a very unique uh, labour environment which means that we're very good at innovation and we're very good at the structures that 
uh, surround and support innovation. And yeah, you can't see it. It's not like building a car, but yeah, it's still really important. I agree, but when you think of the car industry, you have all the people who design the cars, who develop the new technologies within the cars, who then sell the design technology and the IP around but the marketing of the We're cars. We're really good at innovative manufacturing. Uh, but I agree, but that's why... But, but it's actually having the seeding of having the headquarters of big industrial firms that are manufacturers primarily in the country that crowds and all the other stuff, the legal expertise, the commercial expertise, the marketing expertise that helps to sell a product like a BMW in Germany. So you go to Munich, it's not just the manufacturers in the factory, it's all the agencies around it that actually help promote it around the world. So that's why having these things creates a really a really great ecosystem, if you like, but it's all rooted fundamentally in the value of the product that's sold. So I would say that's why manufacturing casts a much more beneficial shadow over the, the wider economy most other sectors do, which are fairly compartmentalised. So I would say that's why it has, a, I'd say manufacturing does present that unique value proposition because it crowds in more wealth than any other sector does by its own merits. I think you're being nostalgic now. I'm not being nostalgic at all. I think I think there's this sense that it's better if we can see things physically, if we have factories and assembly lines and... and um, well, manu- the whole nature of manufacturing is changing as well. Moving well, yeah. to the you know the internet Robots of things. Over. Um, oh come on, right! I'm going to call you both out here. First of all, oh. you mentioned fintech. What is fintech? I did an election panel before the election, and a man I was in the city, and a guy went, "What about fintech?" And I went, "Oh yes, it's very important." Mm. <laughs> I have no fintech. idea what fintech is. Fintech is technology surrounding finance. So it's using automation and computing power to make connections between businesses, between consumers, to uh, revolutionise payment technology. Is that like blockchain? Investing. Yeah, blockchain's a really important part of it. Do you understand blockchain? I explain, I understand blockchain about as much as most people who invest in Bitcoin. So that's... It's just going to be a massive bubble, I've heard. But yeah, well, Bitcoin. Um, I, so your Bitcoin. I love uh, I love arguing with the crypto people on on Twitter because crypto people. Oh What's yeah. a crypto person? The crypto people who believe that. Is that uh, not a real. Is that like an AI? Is that like a robot? A crypto person. Actually, they probably they probably all are automated anyway. Oh, um, but no, the, the blockchain technology is simply the idea that you don't need middlemen institutions to verify accounts, whether those are financial accounts or legal accounts or trade deals or whatever, that you can have a system that everyone can see and that is hosted in multiple places so people can't hack it, uh, that um, clearly defines relationships and transactions. And you can use that in accounting, you can use that in theoretically HR. We ran a piece last week that said you can use it in marriage. Um, it's been used in currency. You wouldn't have a lot of employed accountants and lawyers, basically. No, you wouldn't <laughs> marry a robot, but rather than like the government You city being... people are perverts. You want to marry robots? I thought, well, I never didn't realise it was so bad in the city. I thought you were progressive. Marry robots? Each to their own. How no. you use well, it, it's, quite, it's quite interesting because the last few weeks we've had a lot of issues around blank closures raised in PMQs. Yes. And there's been a lot of debate about that in the last few weeks. But that's a sector that's subject to massive technological disruption right now because there's a shift almost with, like I'd never go to a branch, I have to say, the only time I've ever been to a branch to do any sort of banking business was when I got a mortgage. Yeah. You know, like all my stuff's done on my phone. But, you know, speak to my parents Is it? though. Yeah. Oh, speak okay. to my parents. My mum works as a branch manager for TSB. Oh, oh. So, you know, that's something that's a challenge for, for you know, they're going to deal with it. You know, the people she serves are mainly older older people who are there was a generational yeah. split. I was gonna say, how do you how do you send you a check? So how does government manage that change in technology? Because you're gonna have a generation that's kinda of stuck to uh, 
you know, stickier towards the older ways of doing things, and you're going to have this generation that's easier to adopt new ways of doing things that are simpler. So that's, I guess, that's where government has to help come in, isn't it? It's going to have to manage that transition. You know, you're going to have people who are going to be totally cut off by branches closing, for example, yeah. because fintech disruption to the sector has made these things available. But the rate of adoption is maybe not going to be uniform across each generation. So how does government kind of smooth the smooth the transition? Manufacturing that's, banks. Well, I, I made that actually. Well, I, made a, I made a good point. Like, here's a good idea. Here's a good point, right? We've got world-leading universities in Britain. Yeah. Uh, arguably, the you know the world's best higher education sector in terms of research and development and, and, and the kind of capacity for for innovation. But a good example of that was back in the nineteen sixties, Britain created the ATM, the off the off yeah. machine, because banks wanted to close on Saturdays. Yeah, uh, and that was the idea that this would be the technology used to enable banks to close on Saturdays. Yeah. So it was actually created by a guy in Glasgow, um, and he was awarded a lifetime achievement award by the Institute of Engineers and Shipbuilders, which I'm a member of. Oh, here we go. Uh, a couple, years, a couple of years ago, uh, but he did a speech and he was saying, "Look, it was a great thing. You know, we achieved this um, innovation, but it's always been really disappointing for me that." The industrial benefit of it never came to the UK. It was all American and German companies uh, that well, took exactly. on the industrial benefit. So it's like, how do we link together the innovation expertise, the, the IP that we generate in Britain, and, and transform it into an industrial benefit as well? That's that's where we need to think about where we finance. It. How do we finance uh, startups? How do we finance new um, industrial uh, creation in this country? Nationalise the, the manufacturing question. companies. Well, I don't think it's. UK I don't think it's. I don't think it's. Turbine building company, I don't UK think it's car making company. <laughs> We're back to the bring back the Austin Maestro. I don't, I don't think it's the the, 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 the panacea that you present it as, unfortunately. Oh, I don't but know there's a there's a mixture. Some sectors require uh, state intervention because globally that's the only way you can break into the market. You know, right. but other sectors benefit from a, a very uh, open ecosystem of new new entrants to the market. But that's that's the nature of economics. It's a lot of it's um, governed by, you know the what goes on in other countries and you know if you're going to not provide state support for a sector where other, every other country provides state support but you're going to be the sucker it loses out you know so I called out Rachel on fintech I'm going to call you out on the internet of things oh yeah what's that well, that's not a thing that's just a thing people say so imagine that when your light bulb in your in your lamp in your flat yeah. uh, is going to run out or, yeah. or blow yeah. it'll actually let you know it's going to happen and, and it'll automatically order you a new light bulb and it'll arrive uh, in your uh, your post well, you that's, can put it in. that's basically what it is you'll I mean, still have to fit it so you still have to fit it yeah. until the robot your your personal house robot will do it maybe oh, I've, got one, I've got an Alexa at Christmas so I've got oh, right. the same wow. thing right Oh wow! That's basically well, the internet. Alexa is, is the internet. Is it? But it's, yeah. Imagine but it's, who? I mean, the one thing I always think about is all you know, those people moan about council stuff. Oh, streetlights are always out in my area. The bins are always overflowing. You know, all these things that require reactive reporting of things, stuff. But imagine how much more efficient it's going to be when the bins alert the bin uh, cleansing department that they're full and they need emptied. And oh, what you think you doing know, away with bin day? Is that what you're actually saying here? Bin, bot. bin day could be, I think. It's going to be a, there's going to be a bin bot that will be able to tell when it's full and it'll, it'll alert people to empty it. So that's that's the sort of technology, that's the internet of things. Imagine the efficiency it's going to cause. You know, oh, it's, it's going, going to be, be terrible for bin men. No, because the bin men will still be needed to empty it, but it just means that we're doing their job more efficiently. Mo- moving slightly away from bins, like we've, it's... We've been a long way from paying <laughs> already. Yeah, so, yeah, I get you know. a lot of emails about bins, that's the thing. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Wasn't there that, that, that woman who ran for the council just as the rubbish party and won and her... her there is a rubbish party. And I her don't know only manifesto commitment was that she was going to sort out rubbish collection in her ward. Good for her. That was Eric Pickle's thing, wasn't it? The internet of things is is all of that but it's also um, it's environmental in that you can have smart homes that will 
not be heated when they don't need to be and that yeah. will be very energy efficient um and you've got also a lot of stuff to do with um we talk about, a lot about social care and the cost of social care and loneliness among older people yeah. and uh, sort of safety and if you have smart homes connected to the internet of things which we're not there yet but where the appliances uh can tell what's going on and maybe turn turn the heating on or off or remind people to take their medications when they need to it can provide more of a support system and if something goes wrong alert family members so they know what's going on like yeah, and reduce fuel policy like as well. Yeah, like well, it could also all get hacked by the Russians as well. So yeah. we need to make sure that we're building in uh, security to these things. But it's really yeah. exciting. You just don't like progress. No, it's I do like progress. I just think it's uh, one of those things but that people say. Yeah, well, I know Alexa can turn the lamp on and off for me, which is quite exciting. It's pretty exciting. You walk in the room and go, Alexa, turn the lamp on. on the, <laughs> That's not my magic. The, but apart from that, it's just good for like. We're on the, the cusp of the fourth industrial revolution. Fourth industrial revolution. What was the third? When was? Oh, I lose track. It's like feminism. I lose track of the waves of feminism. I think we're on four and a half. Industrial of what feminism? Oh, yeah. Well, right, okay. I'm still on. Well, all right. I'm willing to move on to the fourth. Industry 4.0. That's what you need to get with. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I see. Things. <laughs> Um, right, we've moved a long way from PMQs. Was there anything else we want to talk about at uh, PMQ? There was quite a lot with police police cuts. Well, there was a bit of uh, there was a bit of arm wrestling over devolution, which was interesting. There was. Yeah. The speaker was not very happy with the Nats today, was he? No. So we had Alan Brown asking about Alan Brown, Alan Alan Brown, as the Nats call him for some reason, uh, with his strange accent, which he claims nobody understands, and. To, true to form, the speaker didn't really understand him today. But he said something about MPs getting raffled off at the famous Tory black and white ball. Uh-huh. The speaker ruled him out of order, even though what you're saying was true, which was yeah, that people went was and bid weird. to have lunch with Liam Fox and stuff like yeah. that. So that seemed a bit harsh. Is it not the case that MPs can say anything without being liable for being sued in the chamber? So I thought that was a privilege. Privilege, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but you could also you can't, be you can't out of order, order, can't you? You can't, like, slate another member. Yeah, um, you can't like basically call him dishonourable. Yeah, that's what he was just kind of. He was, he was very yeah. school teacher esque today, wasn't he? He was. He was obviously naughty I don't know, children. Maybe it's consider your behaviour and stop it. Maybe it's because there was French MPs in the chamber. He was showing off. He does like to show off the speaker, doesn't he? Uh, and then we had uh, David Linden, wasn't it? Yeah, actually talked right. about My lack of job setters, which I know is an issue close to your heart. Yeah, but he had took the opportunity to slag Douglas Ross, who had previously asked about. British Transport Police becoming part of Police Scotland. Yeah. Right. So let's go through this. First of all, British Transport Police becoming part of Police Scotland is a disaster. Yeah. Because Police Scotland is rubbish and it, there's no reason as far as I can see for Police Scotland to take up British Transport Police or work better on a UK-wide no, the basis. Reason they don't, the SNP just don't like it because it's got the word British in it. I see, I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm not... That's actually, if you want... Knee-jerk really, anti-SNP, but that does seem to be what's going on. It's as unsophisticated as that, essentially. It seems to it's be. about the de-Britishisation of Scotland. Because it's going to be a cock-up. So if the they change the name, would they be okay with that? As if long as it's got a saltire on the badge, they'll be cool with it. Yeah. It's going to be part of Police That's Scotland, it. which is rubbish. The Scottish National Transport Police Authority or something. As long as it's got the, the word Scottish in it, they'll be cool with it. David Linden <laughs> thought it wasn't appropriate to be asking about that at Prime Minister's questions because it's a thing that's devolved to Scotland, although the power of a British transport police, of course, has been yeah. devolved from and it has implications. To it actually has implications across the for border. For British transport yeah. police, so it mean, yeah. seemed not it's, unreasonable. You know, people and in Cumbria, people in Northumberland might have an issue around it. You know. Yeah, and then the uh, Speaker told him off and said, I'll decide what's in order and what's not. <laughs> there was also, this is my favourite question, and I can't remember who asked it, you can tell me, uh, about 
cannabis medication. Oh yeah, it was a Chris good thing. Blunt, he yes. loves drugs. He um, loves drugs. Good. It's glad. It's good that somebody does um, because it's been absolutely tragic. The idea that a British patient can't get pain medication that they need because basically our our government and to be fair the Labour government before and basically every government is so terrified of the idea that people might enjoy a substance that is basically the same level of harm as alcohol and less harmful than cigarettes uh, that they won't even let it be used for medication and basically I think you know Theresa May she's got very little political capital to sort of do anything the Tories want to win over the young vote would it be that difficult for her to say this is actually a medical issue yeah we're gonna we're gonna let people get the pain medication that they need she totally copped out and said oh, it's about rigorous standards of medication no it isn't it's yeah, about fear of they're using fear that of 1960s the 60s really. yeah. yeah it's crazy you know it's, it's absurd I, mean, I was in the urgent question yesterday Chris brought about actually which was really interesting because the government's drugs policy in general is just so antiquated it's unreal like, you know, we're trying to pilot a safe drug consumption room in Glasgow. Yes. Because drug-related deaths in Glasgow are, like, a thousand, over a thousand percent higher uh, than the EU average um, because of uh, intravenous, uh, inappropriate use of intravenous drugs and the yeah. quality of certain drugs. So why wouldn't you want to pilot it to establish a body of evidence to see if this does reduce harm? You know, international examples all universally indicate that they will help to reduce drug-related deaths. You know, Portugal's had quite a radical approach to doing uh, drug policy where they've essentially decriminalised all consumption of drugs. The drug-related death rate in Portugal is now essentially negligible. You know, the, the benefits from a public health point of view are obvious, yet the government just seems to be rigidly paralysed because it's terrified of um, a sort of, I, I guess, a reactionary commentary yeah, that we want to be against it. You know, I just find Front that... Front page absurd. of the sun would be Theresa yeah. May with a massive reefer. That's what, and that you know, would be that the would thing. probably get her a lot of votes. Yeah. You're, I yeah. think you're being uh, racist towards young people <coughs> if young people are a race suggesting that all young people love drugs young people don't like drugs anymore they're all boring <laughs> it's all like middle aged people who used to take drugs yeah, and the people like, from the 60s my, my experience of young people is that we, we quite like evidence and the government not telling us what to do about things so no one's saying that young people have to take loads of drugs or even that anyone has to take loads yeah. of drugs but it's quite nice the idea that yeah the government trusts you to make your own decisions um, and uh, there's also I mean basically my generation has got pretty much screwed over on yeah. pensions and uh, definitely housing and yeah. first generation to poor parents exactly yeah. um, and the drugs that are legal oh what now, so it's all going to be rubbish so you're just going to take drugs to forget about no. it no is that what you're saying <laughs> is that what's going on here basically we're saying when's prohibition ever worked yeah. No, so the drugs that are legal now are the drugs that our grandparents basically enjoyed, like alcohol and cigarettes, and they're never going to make those illegal, regardless of how harmful they may or may not be. Whereas the drugs that are much safer now that young people might enjoy, they're the ones that no, you can't have because you're not responsible enough for them. Yeah. And the thing is, they would be safer if the supply chain was legalised and regulated properly and the product safety was known. At the moment, it's in the mercy of And Baxter's. you'd reduce street crime, and yeah. you'd, you'd reduce the prison population, all of which are good things. Exactly. What yeah. drugs have you taken, Paul? I've never taken any drugs, actually. Oh, come on. At least, uh, at least oh, not directly. Go. I may have passively inhaled uh, oh. some sort of... <laughs> some sort of uh, it's a very Bill Clinton answer. Uh, well, you know, I, may have been in a, I may have been in a room where drugs were going, uh, being consumed. I've never actually taken any. I've always been a bit... Um, 
of a bit of a square when it comes to that. I've certainly, I've certainly got, I've certainly got um, steam in a, a lot of things. But you would advocate for people being able to have the choice to safely yeah. use them if they wanted, and also for them to be used for medical purposes. Absolutely. Brilliant. Yeah. No brainer. Theresa May, get on it. Right. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, neither of you are in government, so you can't, <laughs> can't have any influence with Theresa May. Maybe Christopher oh, yeah. Blumber. Right. Um, we've gone on far too long. We've gone to all sorts of strange areas a long way from being yeah. accused which it's is a good thing um, let's finish up with it's been like a trip yeah. uh, well, not that I know or any of us would know because none of us have taken have you taken lots of illegal drugs Rachel? not to my knowledge no well none of us know what we're talking about then yeah. do we because we're I'd all like such if clean they, living they, people if they became legal I would like to okay yeah. if you want to send in any drugs I will pass them on to Rachel for research purposes look up the City AM address and just send all your drugs to, <laughs> send all your drugs to City AM um, not white powders because that would be bad and then they'll have terrible security issues um, let's finish with this I love your questions I love your questions I love your question. Is that Emily Dickens doing that? It's not. <laughs> well done, good guess, but it's not. It is an MP, it is a Labour MP. All right. Um, I love your questions. A couple of weeks ago, Stuart M. MacDonald asked, set the question. Malcolm. Indeed. Mm. Set the question for you, Paul, which was, will you stand for the deputy leadership of the Scottish Labour Party? No, I won't be standing for the deputy leadership. Why not? Well, partly because I think there should be a male-female split in the leader and deputy leader, but also because I've got other priorities right now, which are mainly focused on building up my profile locally. I've only been elected eight months, and I have a majority... Well, you're a deputy leader, that build up your profile. No, not really, because I need to actually spend my time focused on engaging locally in my constituency, so I want to spend my Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays doing that sort of stuff, rather than spending it doing deputy legal stuff. So which and learning how to navigate around this maze of a building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've been leaving lots of breadcrumbs everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. So which That's Scottish why they have a mouse problem. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's a self-perpetuating cycle of despair. Yeah. So which Scottish <laughs> Labour lady would you like to see standing for the deputy? Oh, well, it's both for choice, aren't they? Got my well, lovely office mate, Danielle. Uh, Danielle she Rowley, might be up for candidate. I don't know. She might be. Uh, I've got Monica Lennon. She's great. got Elaine Smith. She's cool. You know, there's uh, Jackie Bailey, potentially. They're all really good, strong women. Very great voices uh, in the Labour okay. Party in Scotland. So, And they all come from... Uh, variety of political viewpoints within the labour movement as well. So um, I'm up for that contest if it's going to happen in the summer. So, yeah, is it, it happening in the summer? I mean, nobody's really talking about it. Because Not right now because well, what the main focus is now is getting our candidates ready and our key target seats. So we're looking at no. selections oh, in the next few months. No, so that's going to be time. There's not going to be a general election anytime know, soon. But you need to get them out there campaign. Don't say that. So that is not. Don't tempt fate. Every time not. someone says that, there's an election. The next question is for Kirsty Blackman. She's the oh, next guest in two weeks' time. Who, what question would you like to say? Okay, well, I've been asking a lot of people um, around Parliament the last few, like, couple of months since the new year what their big prediction is for the big political upset in Scotland this year. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people have been saying to me that they think Sturgeon's going to go. She's going to resign. Yeah. So she's like, well, where's she going to go from here? She's peaked. Yeah. Uh, so my question would be, who do you think the next leader of the SNP is? Going to be, <laughs> and we go for it. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe by in a couple of weeks' time we'll know if she's going to stand for deputy leader because certainly you never know. deputy leader looks like. Why settle for deputy? Could well be. <laughs> well, yeah, it could well be FM in waiting, depending on who gets it. I think. I mean, certainly yeah. that's how it's how it looked in the past. Uh, okay, we'll set that in two weeks' time. Come back next week for one of my Brexit breakdown podcasts. It's uh, Eloise Todd 
leader of Best for Britain. She's the guest next week, the one that's been tied up with George Soros and all that, so that'll be an interesting one. For now, I'll say thank you to Rachel. Thank you to Paul. Yeah, if you want to get in touch to discuss anything in this podcast, the nature of economics, or whether you want to send us any drugs, uh, I yeah. am politicalyeti at gmail.com on the email and at politicalyeti on Twitter. Uh, come back next week for a Brexit breakdown okay. and in two weeks for another Political Yeti's Politics podcast. Thank you.